Good morning. Uh, well, I guess it's morning for us here. And thank you for joining us on the official podcast of the Scoliosis Research Society. This is the Scoliosis Dialogues. And we're going to continue our series on highlighted papers from the journal Spine Deformity. Um, and please remember, that Spine Deformity is the official journal of the Scoliosis Research Society. And so our discussion today will be on the paper, uh, which was in our most recent episode of Spine Deformity, Beware of Open Triradiate Cartilage. One in four patients will lose greater than 10 degrees of correction following posterior-only fusion surgery. And we have the lead author of the paper with us here today. This is Dr. Anthony Cantanzano from Duke University. Uh, and so, Anthony, thank you for joining us today. We're so happy to have you here. Yeah, thanks so much, Grant, for the opportunity. Really excited about this. Great. And so, uh, as aforementioned, you are in practice at Duke, and we were just speaking, and you're coming up on your second year of practice. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you started, and how you got to Duke in the first place. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, um, I grew up in New York, uh, in Long Island, the suburbs of New York City. Uh, I did my undergrad at Johns Hopkins, and then uh, medical school at NYU. And I always like to clarify that was before the uh, free tuition uh, portion of, of NYU. Um, <laughs> and then honestly, I, I never thought I'd leave. Uh, I never thought I'd leave the tri-state area until I came down and visited Duke for my residency interview and absolutely love the uh, faculty here and the, uh, the culture and the environment. And so I came down for residency uh, and then went out to Rady Children's in San Diego, um, where uh, I worked on majority of the, the work for this project uh, was centered out of, and then returned on staff um, almost about two years ago now here at Duke. Excellent. And during your residency training at Duke, what initially drew you to pediatric orthopedics and, and pediatric spine work? Yeah, so for me, it was I really didn't know what I wanted to do up until probably about third year, uh, which seems late nowadays when you see how early residents kind of find their 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 niche. But um, it was really cerebral palsy. I always say was what brought me in. Um, being just seeing the the coordination of care, the multidisciplinary um, aspect of it, the the involvement of the families and the caregivers, and really just the amazing things we can do for these children with disabilities. That's really what brought me into pediatrics. And then I'll never forget my first AIS case was really the first time I feel like I was in the OR and I, I really, you know, was was just so enthralled in the actual procedure and the surgery itself. And so those two things really led me to to pursue a career in pediatric orthopedics. Oh, I absolutely understand that, especially mentioning that, you know, being in an AIS case, because in some ways it's the ultimate and in instant gratification Right. Yeah. You see something in front of you that is crooked. You do a few hours of work and now this thing is much straighter and you've improved someone's life considerably. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's the, the, the aha moment for me as now faculty was, you know, having a, a resident, you know, maybe not going into peds, but seeing the spine move with the derotation maneuver and going, oh, wow, it really moves. And, you know, remember being on that side of the table and being amazed at it when I was a resident. It was it was full circle. It was really, really cool. Good, good. So let, let's get down to the business of this paper. Would you mind giving us kind of a, a journal club style overview of what you've done here? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So this is a, uh, a retrospective study, but, but of course, of a prospective uh, collected database, the HARM study group. Uh, and it was really a kind of continuation of work that was done by uh, Dr. Sponseller about five years ago. 
um, in which the two-year outcomes were reported for a similar study. We uh, extended that to five-year reported outcomes. And what we did was we, uh, we found uh, about 67 patients uh, with open triradiates, risk or zero, uh, that had undergone posterior spinal fusion with AIS. We had a matched cohort of patients with closed triradiate cartilage and then included any patients within the database that uh, had an open triradiate but were fused both anteriorly and posteriorly. And what we're really interested in is uh, looking at the degree of progression and adding on, uh, comparing the open triradiates to the posterior uh, to the closed triradiate patients. Uh, I think early on, before pedicle screws were the main uh, implant that we used, I think there was certainly a concern for crankshaft and for progression of curves with posterior only instrumentation. But uh, that concern kind of has gone away as we've uh, gotten better, you know, three column control of the spine. And so this really wanted to look at, well, do we still have those same concerns of progression and adding on? And what we found was while, uh, while that risk does exist, I think it's uh, less than certainly previously, and even less than we saw in the initial two-year outcomes uh, reported by Sponseller et al. And so while there is that risk of uh, progression and adding on, it only led to one revision in our cohort of 67 patients with open triradiates. And so I think from that, we were able to kind of begin to make some conclusions and kind of find some things that we can look at to uh, better uh, hone in our treatment of those open triradiate patients. So posterior spinal fusion is still an option, but you know, are there certain things we have to do to kind of make sure we decrease that, that risk? Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about the, the methodology here, particularly of using multi-center databases. Um, and so as you went through this process, what, what would you say are some of the pearls and pitfalls of trying to ask a question of data that's already been gathered. Because for, for someone like yourself, who is a, a pretty established researcher, the normal process is that you come up with a question and then you gather the data and then you try to see you know, and interpret how the data can help you with your question. But when we're using study group and databases, it's a little bit flipped on its head, right? The data already exists. And you're saying, what can I learn from this and how can I apply it to practice? And so what works and what's difficult about that? Yeah, I think when you when you look at clinical research, um, it always it always has to start with the question, regardless of prospective or ret retrospective nature of, of the study that you're doing. But I think what uh, what big databases and what retrospective studies allow us to do is kind of find those future prospective questions, kind of setting us up for the studies that will happen down the road. And so, you know, for this case, uh, as what we, we may get into a little bit is, you know, level selection, for example, whereas we, we started this with our question of like, what are the what, what is the risk of curve progression and adding on in an open triradiate population? And we we're able to kind of answer that question. But what it did is what it did is open up uh, the future questions of, OK, well, what if we looked at this prospectively at patients that, uh, you know, had a, a, a LIV of stable plus one versus stable alone. And so I think that it allows you to kind of build on your future research endeavors by starting with the retrospective data and having a multi-center database that's uh, as well run as, as the harms group. You know, I think when we look at research, so many things are in little pockets. And when we implement things and we want to make big kind of sweeping changes, we have to look at the larger population, you know, your patients in Boston are going to be different than my patients in Durham. And so I think having a large database with multiple different surgeons and patient populations allows us to draw, you know, more meaningful conclusions about the whole population uh, 
as as a as a whole as opposed to little pockets in in certain you know single institutions and such no and you make such an important point about a well-run database because the quality of data entry um, is ultimately the highest amount of quality that you can get from your data input or your data output, I would say. Um, and so these large study groups like HARMS, the Pediatric Spine Study Group or FOX are obviously something that require a high degree of fidelity on the front end so we can ask these questions on the back end. Uh, there were a, a few things in the results that I found interesting and wanted to talk to you about. One um, is that there didn't seem to be much change in the compensatory curves at the two-year or the five-year marker. If it was a larger group of patients, do you think you would see any changes there or were there any trends that you personally noticed for the compensatory curves? No, I think um, I, I think that's a, that's a great point. I think I thought as well, I thought that especially when we looked at, you know, where we were fusing, if, if we're fusing short, I would assume that uh, that compensatory curve, you know, may be able to progress over time, especially if the patient's continuing to grow. But I think it, it kind of speaks to the nature of those curves. I think they truly are compensatory. So I think with good correction of the primary and the, and the major curve, I think we, we do see correction of the compensatory curve. And because uh, because the progression of the main curve wasn't really uh, to a high degree, like I said, you know, we, we, we kind of broke it down to greater or less than 10 degrees. But because we weren't seeing 25 degree swings in that main curve, we weren't seeing those kind of same swings in the in the compensatory curve. And so with the data that we have now, if you have an 11 year old come into your clinic with open triradiate cartilage, in a 57 degree thoracic curve, what's your recommendation? Yeah, I think uh, I think this is a great opportunity to involve the, the patients with this decision making. I think that's one of the really nice things about AIS is that we know that we have a really good, reliable treatment for it. I think we're becoming really good with our surgical technique where we can treat it at varying degrees. Um, and so honestly, I would discuss with the, with the patient and the family, okay, here are some of the risks. And I think this is where this paper really helps us out. It gives us a little bit more data and what we can present to patients and say, okay, you know, if we were to do the fusion now, um, you know, we would obviously, um, uh, achieve our goals of, of, you know, deformity correction and, and, you know, long-term, uh, risk of progression, but there is a small risk, a higher risk, uh, of that you know, being a problem for you if we fuse now. Now our options are we can wait and monitor your curve without any intervention until we get a little bit more skeletally mature, or we can think about maybe we brace, maybe we do some type of temporary bracing to try to halt curve progression for a little bit longer. And with that obviously comes a lot of considerations for the, for the parent and the patient. And I think as long as you're on board uh, together, I think you can make a, an ultimate decision. My, my recommendation would be to fuse uh, at that time, if it's if it's indicated, uh, but I certainly would I would look at my my lateral image uh, really closely, and I'd really try to make sure I'm doing the right using the right uh, lowest instrumented vertebra uh, to prevent that adding on. And to that, uh, to that, I, I guess notion of your lowest instrumented vertebra. So right now, would you say for these patients that you are a stable plus one? Yeah, I think, and that was, I think that's one of the things that we didn't, we didn't want to make too strong of a conclusion with the paper because it was not the primary, uh, one of the primary endpoints we were looking at. 
but I would, I would, it'd be very hard for me to go uh, any higher than stable. And I, I'd almost, as long as it didn't, as long as I didn't have any contraindications to going stable plus one, I think that would be kind of my, where I would, where I would go. I, th- I think part of it is because they're young, that compensatory curve hasn't gotten to its full magnitude yet. And so maybe where we're making our level selection on a kind of premature version of what that compensatory curve is going to ultimately look like. And so I think it's with, without further definitive work on that, I think it's hard to, to give a, a strong conclusion of it, but that that's kind of my gestalt. That's what I would, what I would think of stable plus one for these younger patients. All right. And so maybe a little bit of a different direction here. So the senior author on this paper is Bert Yaze. Um, who is well-known in our world, certainly well-published and appreciated for his research and clinical acumen. During your year at San Diego, what would you say you learned from Dr. Yaze specifically about research and how are you incorporating it into your research team at Duke? Yeah, I think, you know, Dr. Yaze was, uh, was and still is a great mentor of mine. I think it's, it's, it speaks to you know, him that even two years removed from our, my fellowship, I, I feel like I can reach out to him and, and he's always got uh, advice and, 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 and can always lend a hand for, um, uh, for cases and stuff. And I think from a research perspective, um, it really goes back to that question. I think that was really his big thing to me is, you know, start your research with uh, a well-defined question and then making sure that you have the infrastructure to follow that. And if you don't, you know, get it. Don't don't kind of cut corners and try to make things work with what you have. Um, make sure that you have the resources and the uh, the the infrastructure to follow the answer to that question, and and only you know report and publish when you know you you know you have a strong study, which I think is so counterintuitive to how we do research a lot as as trainees. I think we're always trying to grasp onto a, a paper or study just to to increase our CVs. But I think when you're at this stage in your career, like doing meaningful research and finding good methods and good structure is, is the most important thing. And so I, I, I really took that away from my year in San Diego, especially working with, with him. That's fantastic. And so what's next for you? Even early in your career, you have a, a history of publishing high quality work. Is there a special interest or a special topic and something that we're going to see you break out with in the next few years? Yeah, I, I appreciate that question. Yeah, I've, I've kind of taken over the the role of our uh, director of our uh, research within our pediatric division here. And, you know, my main focus is uh, now are, are really on mental health in our patient population. Uh, but more than just that, it's it's what is mental health? What are the things that we need to be looking at in these patient populations, both AIS and even uh, some of the non-spine uh, patients that we treat in the pediatric population? So right now we have uh, two prospective uh, trials going on, looking at different uh, promise measures of psychological stress as well as psychological well-being, uh, and we're also uh, performing some qualitative studies with our patient populations to get get answers from the patients themselves. You know, what what does it mean for them to be stressed? What are the things that are stressful in the post-surgery period? What do they worry about pre-op? I think you know, until we go to the source and find out what those things are, it's it's hard for us to put together interventions. And I think that's the ultimate for me is once we collect that data and we know where uh, the patient populations and the points that we can intervene is working with our child psychiatry department to put together tools and interventions and uh, help kids work on coping skills and mindfulness training and uh, preparing them for the the, the difficulty that may be the, the surgery they have coming up. So I think that's, that's really been our main focus uh, right now. And there's a lot of work to get that 
going, but you know, we're really moving in the right direction now. That's excellent. We look forward to learning from you and learning more from your work in the future. Um, and to everyone else, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. This has been the Scoliosis Dialogues. The Scoliosis Research Society is a nonprofit professional organization made up of physicians and allied health personnel. Their primary focus is on providing continuing medical education to healthcare professionals and on funding and supporting research in spinal deformities. Please visit srs.org for further information. 